This is a two-week study, and this week we're going to focus on chapter 8, and next week on chapter 9. And today I'd like to read straight through both chapters. This guides our big-picture understanding of this text and this topic. So let's see what the Lord has to say through Paul on this matter of generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Now, brethren, we wish, to, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of the, their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you. See that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but is proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Chapter 9. 
For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Praise God for his indescribable word. Let's pray and then we'll look at chapter 8. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge right off the bat here that you are the great provider. Lord, this earth and all in it belongs to you. You are the creator of it. This is your handiwork. And Lord, as we ponder these truths about the resources that you entrust to us, I pray that you will give us wisdom from above, that you will help us to know, Lord, how to be channels of your goodness, your provision, your kindness, your generosity. We thank you, Lord, that you were so generous to us through Jesus Christ. Help us to, to, to follow that model of generosity that you said. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. Do a good work in our hearts and minds now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since we did a significant amount of reading this morning, I'm going to limit my sermon to 20 lessons on biblical generosity. We are going to move through these at a fairly quick pace this morning because they all add up. They all work together and give us a good, healthy, big-picture view of giving. 
So have your Bibles open and take notes if you'd like. If you get behind on the notes, no worries. There are printouts in the foyer of these 20 points. You can grab one of these on the way out. Uh, I don't pass them out in advance because uh, I don't want everybody reading ahead. We've got to stay on the same page as we work through this. So you can grab those on the way out, though. And let me right out the gate here also mention that while Paul is specifically talking about money, he's taking an offering for a group of believers in Jerusalem who are in great need. While Paul is specifically talking about money, about financial gifts to God's work, these lessons apply to all of our resources. The giving of our time, our energy, our emotions, our skill sets, etc. But the context is financial giving, so that's the context that we're going to work from today. So let's fasten our seatbelts and we'll move quickly through 20 lessons on biblical generosity. And you may even find more. These 20 should at least get our gears going. Lesson number one, biblical generosity is important. We see all 20 of these points clearly given in the text. Paul begins chapter 8 by saying, now brethren, we wish to make known to you. That's Paul saying, you need to hear this. I'm bringing to this to your attention on purpose. And the fact that Paul is about to spend two chapters on the subject of generosity highlights its great importance. Lesson number two, generosity is a matter of God's grace. He says, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Now you may know Macedonia includes cities like Thessalonica, which we recently studied. We're looking at Philippi, Berea. These are the northern neighbors of Corinth, up at the top of the Aegean Sea. Now, as we dive into this two-week study here, we must observe that every good thing we are about to find in the text and read and study about is the result of grace. And grace is God's work, God's power, God's strength doing good things in the hearts and lives of people. We're talking about divine strength and blessing. And God gets all the credit, and rightly so. Ephesians 2.8 starts out with this fundamental truth. For by grace you are saved. And our text today points out this truth in the Macedonian church. For by grace they gave. Giving is something God does through us. I don't understand exactly how that works, but we find it to be a truth. There is something spiritual, something divine about it when he provides and we lovingly share for his glory. That sharing is the grace of God at work. Lesson number three, trials shouldn't inhibit joy and generosity. Verse two says, then in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That is a remarkable scenario. That's one of those sentences you have to read several times to put all the pieces together because these are the most unexpected pieces in this sentence. This is one of those equations that doesn't make mathematical life sense. People in deep affliction aren't supposed to be overjoyed. People in deep poverty aren't supposed to be extremely generous. Paul called it overflowing in the wealth of liberality. That's Paul using the bold and the underline and the highlight all on the same phrase there. 
Guzik points this out in his commentary on this verse. The poverty of the Macedonians is confirmed by secular history. The Romans took most of their wealth when they conquered this former homeland of Alexander the Great. The Macedonians were, by, by and large, an oppressed and very poor people. Here's a very quick takeaway for us today. Suffering doesn't have to rob us of our joy. And poverty doesn't have to rob us of our generosity. Grace proves both of those hardships to be irrelevant. They're no longer an excuse. They are an opportunity, an opportunity for God's grace to sweep in and do what only God's grace could do. None of this made sense in the Macedonian churches. Don't you love the defying nature of God's grace? And it's worth noting that the text doesn't say how much they gave either. It just says how they gave. It reminds us of the widow's might and her sacrificial humility versus the religious elite and their prideful large offerings. Lesson number four. Sometimes we give what we can afford and sometimes we give very sacrificially. Verse 3 says, for I testify, that's Paul saying, I saw this with my own eyes. I know this to be true, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. And Paul commends them for both here. They gave what they budgeted, and at times, they gave more than they budgeted. Paul's not encouraging people to go into debt here to give to, to those in need or to give to the church, etc. He's simply commending the fact that there were times like this when the Macedonian churches gave very sacrificially. Lesson number five, generosity is a passionate personal desire, not a required tithe. It's worth noting that the word tithe, which means a one-tenth, 10%. It is never even mentioned in the New Testament. Systematic giving is often a good stewardship practice, but God doesn't put a tax bracket on the church. That's why we call it free will or God will giving. The best giving stems from a passionate personal desire to share, not an obligation or requirement. Verse 3 says, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging. When in the world was the last time you saw people begging with much urging for an opportunity to give to the Lord's work? Praise the Lord, I see it and I hear it often. People sincerely asking for ways they can share. Allow me to take a moment to very sincerely praise God and commend our church family for giving of your own accord, of your own desire, of your own urging. It is a sad day and a sign of very poor spiritual health when the roles reverse and the pastor pegs, begs for giving because the people won't give of their own accord. In the 16 or so years that I've attended here, I have never heard anyone from this pulpit beg for giving. And I see many of you have been here longer than me nodding your heads in the same. That is a praise to God. This topic rarely is addressed, but Paul addresses, and it's a truth, it's a, it's a wonderful truth that we engage in in the text this morning. The fact that 
God has been so good to us in this way is a real testimony of the grace of God in Pastor Mark and in the church leadership and in the congregation as a whole. As you're going to see, when a church family, family humbly and faithfully does what chapters 8 and 9 lay out, God just provides. And he does so in such a joyful, wonderful, inspiring way to all who observe. It's awesome to watch and to be a part of. Lesson number six, generosity is a great privilege. What did the Macedonian churches beg Paul for? The verse says, for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. There's a very humble and God-trusting attitude here that both we and our whole church family and our leadership must be very careful to maintain. And that is the view and the attitude that we are all privileged to give of our resources to what God is doing to put his word forth. It's easy to say that, but we have to believe that and steward that. Church leaders and members alike can never fall prey to the idea that God and the church are so privileged to have our gifts. Yes, there's a tension here. I, as a pastor, am incredibly grateful, and I am very humbled and inspired by the faithful giving of God's people. But I am also reminded that the privilege is ours. The favor of participation is ours because God has been so generous with you and me. Verse 5 now gives us three points. There's three lessons here. Number seven, biblical generosity begins in the heart, not the wallet. Look at what verse 5 says. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves. An incorrect and a dangerous prioritization happens when we give an offering, but not our heart, our life. We're reminded here that God doesn't want our money. He wants us. And when he has us, our things easily belong to him. Number eight, we don't give to the offering. We give to people, including the Lord. The verse says they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us. These are such incredible wisdom truths. We tend to naturally think we're giving to a cause or a need, or a project, or a building. And in a sense, that's true. But in the truer sense, we never give to a cause or a project alone. It's the person that we're giving to. Yes, we put our offering in the box. But the box isn't getting our gift. It's going to a person. It's going to a missionary. It's going to a family. It's, going, it's taking the, the gospel to people. Even when we give for the new building, it's not the building that we're giving to. You understand this. That is not the case in the least. It is the people who will find Christ and grow in Christ and be sent out for Christ. This is an awesome truth to remember. Lesson number nine. Biblical generosity is God's will for believers. Verse 5 continues, they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Faith-filled, love-filled generosity isn't God's preference 
for all his people. It's not one of several good options. This isn't for the times that it's convenient. This is the will of God. Number 10. This one's going to stretch the intellect a little. It's not giving until it's given. Paul is about to talk about follow through here. Verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. He's going to touch on this in a few verses again. Titus had spoken to them in the past, and he was going back, he was returning to finish taking up this collection because it's not giving until it's given. Number 11, well-rounded Christianity includes generosity. Verse 7, this is a very interesting verse. He says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Our generosity is something that we can tend to overlook as we focus on all the other Christian virtues. A strong statement of faith, good preaching and teaching, solid doctrine, commitment, and even love. But Paul says, don't forget about generosity. Number 12, others who give should inspire us. Verse 8 says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. It's not a competition. It's an inspiration. It's an encouragement. It's an example and a testimony of God's goodness being experienced so deeply that it has to be shared. And when we see others demonstrate the sincerity of their love, it should inspire us to do the same. Not jealousness, not envy, not spite, not a critical spirit. Inspiration. Lesson number 13 we find in the text. Biblical generosity follows Jesus' example. Paul drops the big one right here. For you know, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, through, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. That's an overwhelming testimony of how much God loved us through Jesus. Paul, in so few words right there in verse 9, such excellent words, says, look no further than Jesus himself. He set the example for the Macedonians. He sets it for you and for me. He became poor so we could become rich. And of course, context and reality, history, help us to see that these are spiritual riches that Paul is referring to here. Otherwise, Paul totally missed the boat. Martyrdom doesn't sound like a bigger boat and a better home. Nothing essentially wrong with those things, but that's not what we hope to gain when we give to God and his work. Our sacrifice of material resources for the sake of the gospel and others is us becoming materially poorer so others can become spiritually richer. We know in other texts, Paul reminded the Gentiles it is because of the riches that came from the Jews being the gospel 
that have come to us as Gentiles and made us rich, that we should in turn, of course, take the material things of this world and share them with those, with the Jews. That was Paul's challenge to the church. He's showing the prioritization of spiritual riches. We have been the recipients of the grace of salvation. It's only right, only reasonable, that we would share of the material things that we have so others can also get the greater riches. Paul now goes back to our point number 10 on follow through. Here in verses 10 and 11, look at these verses. He says, I give my opinion in this matter. Again, versus a command. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. We've all heard the phrase, it's the thought that counts. Okay, sometimes. But 99.9999% of the time, I think we'd all find this to be more true. The thought was sweet, but it's the effort that made the difference. It's the effort that counts. Lesson number 14 we find in the text. We do what we can. This continues from the last three words of verse 11, by your ability. Verse 12 says, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable, meaning it is good and right, according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We do what we can. This is some of the most freeing, realistic, thought-correcting, emotion-correcting counsel we can get on this topic. How often do we find ourselves really wanting to give and help out in a certain situation, but in the end, we ended up doing nothing because we got overwhelmed trying to do more than we realistically could. I've been there. We couldn't do it all, so we ended up doing nothing. When it would have been better to at least do a little because we could. You and I might not be able to visit someone in the hospital, but we've probably got time to make a phone call. We may not be able to take a meal to someone, but we might have a moment to jot a note and pop it in the mail to them, etc. If the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That's down-to-earth good counsel right there. <clears throat> Number 15, it's not about me, it's not about them, it's about us. This is an awesome truth. Verse 13 to 15. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, as we hear the word equality in the text here, I, I have no doubt that it provokes a wide range of reactions in our minds. Is Paul talking about socialism, communism? Is he talking about a forced redistribution of wealth or, or perhaps even a higher tithe bracket for the more well-off in the church? Allow me to just cut to the chase here. The key lies in the word 
need. Need. And the context of the need that Paul is talking about. We already know that Paul had very little patience for laziness. If a man does not work, what? He should not eat. That's why studying verses like this, this passage here, in the broader context of all scripture is important. The same man, Paul, who said lazy people need to experience hunger pain, also gave us these verses. It's the situational context that makes the difference. The genuine need. What was Paul asking the Corinthian church to give to? To the deep poverty of the believers in Jerusalem. As I already mentioned in Macedonia, there are wars, there are oppressions that take place that leave people hurting very badly. There are natural disasters that strike. People with the most secure of jobs can lose them overnight. Things happen. Genuine needs arise. And in Jerusalem, there was a desperate hardship. It was a matter of survival in that region. The poverty had become so serious for many of the believers. Remember, this was a time when it was not economically advantageous to claim Jesus Christ. We know what happened to Jesus for that. We know what happened to the apostles. There was a genuine, severe and significant need among God's people, and that called for Christ-like generosity. We see this is not complicated. We also have to appreciate the common sense leadership that Paul exercises and demonstrates here. In terms of balancing out this, this idea of equality, he first says, this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. Paul's addressing another excuse before the readers can even express it. Paul's just trying to make life hard on us. So we're we supposed to give so much that we can't even provide for our own families? So we're supposed to just give money to the people who are being lazy and wasting it? Should we feel guilty if we're genuinely unable to send a gift? To all of this, Paul says, no. That's not the point. That's not the intent. Here's the question I hear Paul asking the Church of Corinth. Do we have each other's backs or not? Do we really care? Is the love of God really in us? Here's one of the major themes of this entire book. Again, we are in this together. And we see that in this point, this lesson in the text. It's not about them. It's not about me. It's about us. Lesson number 16, biblical generosity is a shared vision. Verse 16 says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. That's Paul saying, I'm not the only one who sees this need. I'm not the only one who sees the opportunity that we all have to, to, to support. Titus agrees. He believes in this too. There's a good truth here. If, if it's a good idea, it most likely won't just be your idea. It won't just be my idea. How it blesses my heart month after month to see our church board operating by the unanimity policy with every single major issue in this church. If it's a really good idea, we will all see it. That's why very few bad ideas ever make it to the congregation. We wrestle to the point of unanimity 
on anything we present to the church. I thank God for the wisdom he gave Pastor Mark in that many years ago. How it encourages our faith to see nearly 100% of our members vote last January to proceed with the expanded scope of our building project. We weren't looking for 60%, even if that would have passed in by the Constitution. We weren't looking for 70%. We weren't looking for a three-quarters vote. If it's a good idea, it will be a shared idea. A good vision will be a shared vision. Speaking of the building project, we had a face-to-face -face meeting with the architects this past Monday and I had the opportunity to look our primary architect in the eye and ask, so what can you tell me about the timeline? Do you think we can be in the facility in time to launch our fall ministries in 2020? I mean, do the math. We're still waiting on a permit. If they're going to build for six to seven months, it's going to take time to move in. Anybody running the calendar calculator knows we're pushing up against our fall ministries again already. He assured me there's no chance of getting it done that fast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he quite confidently said that timeline is very doable. And he and his team are pushing hard to make that happen. They recognize that next September is our 40th anniversary as a church. They recognize it's Mark and Nancy's 40th anniversary serving in this church. They recognize that it's a, a celebration time of transition with Mark and I, celebrating what God has done and in faith looking forward to what he will do in the future. They recognize we've put off the living nativity for two winters now. So they're, they're pushing hard for us. Pray. We need God's grace to do what only God's grace can do. So back to our point here, a good vision is a shared vision. Number 17, bigger visions require bigger teams. We see this in verse 18. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Lesson number 18, finances require integrity. Verse 19, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered for us by the glory of the... By, by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. You could write church financial handbooks on these verses alone. Again, we find Paul's common sense integrity to be the fruit of his spiritual integrity. Common sense won't always lead to spiritual sense integrity, but spiritual integrity will always lead to common sense integrity. Paul was well aware that he must be above reproach when it came to the handling of finances in the church. Transparency. Good communication, team involvement, accountability were all necessary precautions to protect the Lord's work from those who would seek to falsely discredit it or even abuse it. Put, Paul put all of these elements into play here. In verse 21, he gives us a most exemplary heavenly earthly balance when he says, for we have regard for what is honorable 
not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Hear me on this. Watch out for any person, especially any spiritual leader who says, I don't care what people think. God's the only one that matters. Now, sure, it's possible that their heart is right on this point, and they're simply making an exaggeration to make a point. But it's also very possible that they're removing themselves from the accountability to others, particularly those around them in the church. What a shame. That is a dishonor to the Lord's work. The truth is, some people are eager to give specifically and sacrificially to the Lord with their whole heart. They're just hesitant to give it to what really appears to be an ill-prepared, extravagant, secretive, and arrogant ministry or pastor or church leadership. On the other hand, it's amazing to see how generous God's people can be and have been to give to the Lord's work when they see solid transparency, good stewardship principles, accountability, clear vision, good communication, and respect for the congregation. Paul calls all of this honorable. If you've been here for any length of time, again, then I know you echo my praise and thanksgiving to God for Graham and the way he directs the finances of our church family to be an honorable handling. It's only right that we have the congregation vote on the budget and give the entire thing to them weeks in advance before the vote. It's why we have our books audited. It's why two individuals count the offering. It's why the elders, the pastors, are not made aware of what any individual is giving. Ministry, especially finances, require integrity, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul knew that truth, he taught it, and he put it into practice in his own ministry. The bigger team point is now continued again in verses 22 and 23. It says, We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things. Now, real quick, since we're in the process of nominations for elders and deacons right now, let me be quick to say, those are three things. Those three things we just saw in that verse. Those are three things we should all be looking for in leaders. Have they often been tested and found diligent in many things? I mean, there is so much practical wisdom packed into these verses. So much wisdom. Someone may have a great skill in one area, but a dangerous weakness in another. And sadly, we often find that the damage of the danger often trumps the benefits of the skill. Paul says they must be diligent in many things. He's talking about a well-rounded believer, a person who's demonstrating all of the fruit of the Spirit. Not that he'll be the most exemplary one in the church in all areas, but he is at least diligent in every area. Paul continues, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. There is another stunning characteristic of of trustworthy leadership. They have confidence in the church, confidence in the people they're leading. Here's what I hear Paul saying. Don't put a skilled person in leadership who thinks nobody else is good enough. Nobody else is getting it done. The church is hopeless without them. No. Like Paul and these other men, these other men referenced here, we want and need leadership who sincerely sees potential 
in the church and in the people of God. As Paul so aptly put it earlier in this letter, it's the grace of God in you that I am confident in. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. We all need partners and fellow workers and fellow messengers in the Lord's work. No lone rangers in ministry. Not in the pastorate, not in the Sunday school ministry, not in parenting, not among the elders or deacons, not at the rescue mission, not in our schools. We all need hard-working, trustworthy partners as we share the gospel and live out Christ's love in a very fallen world. We need each other. And here's what Paul had to say about his fellow workers. I hope you don't forget this. They are a glory to Christ. That hits me right there. What a testimony. What a commendation. Can we all say, Lord, when others think of me, when they speak of me, may they say, he is a glory to Christ. She is a glory to Christ. Lesson number 19. The proof is in the generosity. Verse 24 says, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love. Tied hand in hand with this, lesson number 20, our last point. Christ-like generosity is expected. Verse 24 again, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of lo your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Paul boasted about the Corinthians and their love that would be proven through their generosity with believers who were genuinely in, de in uh, desperate need. Paul boasted about their eager participation and about his eager expectation because their generosity was the right thing to do. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. This is a proper expectation, especially of God's people, to whom the most has been given. When I read these verses, I have to admit, Paul's a pretty tough drill sergeant. He's, he's a pretty tough pastor to these believers. He says it like it is. You got love? You got love for God? Prove it. Out in the open where all the other churches can see it. The verse says, show them the proof. These are interesting words. Now let's put this very quickly in back in biblical context. Paul is not advocating blasting a trumpet before we drop our check in the offering. He's not encouraging personal pride and self-glory in our generosity. He's talking about sincerely and tangibly living out our faith. And the reality is that when we live it, people can't help but see it. When God's grace strikes, the world will see it. When Jesus came to earth and he ministered God's truth and God's love, it made headline news. Because God's ways, God's power, Christ-like attitudes in God's people are too 
different. They defy the logic of the world. How can someone in such deep trial be so happy? How can someone so poor be so free and ready and eager to give liberally? This makes no sense. When God works, people can't help but see it. As we wrap up, are you and I making the spiritual waves in our community for Christ that he wants and has equipped us to make? Is our church having the divine impact that God wants us to have in Gig Harbor and Tacoma, now in the Key Peninsula, Port Orchard? Are we making the waves he wants? As one of your pastors, I have to ask myself, Lord, is this all the baptisms you wish us to have on an annual basis? Is the number of souls saved through our church family each year all the souls you want saved? Or is our community so secular that hardly anyone is willing to be saved? Now, yes, we leave the results in God's hands, but hear me, he leaves the labor in ours. If we don't cast lots of seed and water diligently, dare we expect him to give increase? Paul says, show them the proof of your love. Biblical generosity is one of the believer's great privileges. It's one of the virtues of the Christian faith that defies the worldly idea that to have more is better. Sometimes we give what we can. Sometimes we give very sacrificially. No matter what and when, it is a joy because God is our provider. And not just our provider, he's our savior. He's our perfect example and our awesome standard of what it looks like to give lovingly and generously. One only need to read Philippians 2 and to be reminded of Jesus stepping out of heaven in the presence of God to be made like one of the created, to be a servant. That's generosity. That's not just the giving of a financial gift. That's the giving of one's heart and life. Jesus was our perfect example and our awesome standard. We're going to look at part two of biblical generosity next Sunday. I encourage you to prayerfully read and meditate on chapter nine this week. Paul dives, again, he dives into this issue of Christian giving for two chapters. Let me warn you, he was just getting going in chapter 8. What we're going to look at next week is the heart of what Paul was after in chapter 8. May God prepare us to hear and to do these life-changing truths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'll admit, <clears throat> this is an odd topic to talk about, but thankfully... You don't leave it up to me. You don't leave it up to the leaders of this church. You don't even leave it up to us as an entire congregation 
to determine and figure out a good God-honoring view of finances and of generosity. Lord, you lay it all out for us here. You've so freely and clearly given us 20 lessons on the truth that help to shape our view of a very important resource indeed. God, we want to see our resources as you do. But even more importantly, we want to see you for who you are. Surely, as we stand in awe and faith of you and in you, generosity becomes the most natural and obvious and right thing to do as we are able and even at times beyond what we are able. Lord, teach us to give of ourselves first as you did with your own son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate this Christmas season because you loved us so much you gave. How John 3.16 rings through the Christmas season. Lord, help that spirit of loving giving to sweep through us and to prove not just our love, but to prove your grace in our marriages, in our families, in our church, and in our community and beyond. We look forward to seeing you prove the grace of God in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.